You may be seated. And if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you're visiting with us, we are working through Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. Um, it is our regular practice to work through books of the Bible. Um, if you're new to Christianity, maybe you aren't familiar with the Bible, just checking us out. We've printed the text for you on page 8 of your worship guide. Um, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you just to take one of those Bibles in front of you in the pew rack and bring it home with you so you could have God's Word um, in your house, that by His Spirit He may make it dwell richly in your hearts. I'm going to read, uh, starting with uh, 1 Corinthians 9.24. We've printed the end of chapter 10.22 for you, but I'm just going to stop at verse 14 this morning. We'll pick up the rest of that in a couple weeks. This is God's word. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So we do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. For I want you to know, brothers... That our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to drink, eat and drink, and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This is God's word. Would you pray with me as we ask his blessing on his word preached? Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, we just sang about your compassions that fail not, that are new every morning. Not all of us have come here feeling that today. All of us have come here in need of it, though. And so break into cold hearts, 
Awaken sleepy souls. Bring revival and refreshment that we may again see that you are faithful and faithfully in the midst of your people. And if you would prove that by drawing us to the bosom of Christ, then we would rejoice and be refreshed on the fountain of living water. So we ask this in his name. Amen. As we've been seeing, and as we see just throughout the scriptures, belonging to Jesus provides, grants us a great deal of freedom for those who are in Christ. He didn't come to bring a yoke of slavery and and if, you're, if you've been sort of hurt by the church or maybe moved away from the church and that's the way you think about Jesus is that he is one who is a rule giver who gives just sets of rules that you can't live up to and the burden of following Jesus seems so incredibly burdensome and you've gotten another gospel because the gospel of Jesus is a gospel of freedom and liberation. Right? He's freed his people from the demands of the law. We don't have to obey God to be accepted Because Jesus is our righteousness. We're freed from the wrath of God because Jesus satisfied with his own body the demands of God's justice for those of us who have broken his law. Tremendous freedom because we've been free not only from sin's penalty but from its power by the death and resurrection of Jesus. No longer is sin the destructive force of oppression for those who belong to Jesus. But he has set us free to be liberated to a life of walking by his spirit as sons and daughters in God's kingdom. But the question that the Corinthians are asking is, what do we do with that freedom? How do we navigate these tremendous freedoms in a world that is difficult and dangerous and strange at times? What do we do? How do we live out of these freedoms? That's the questions that started back in chapter 8, verse 1. If you've got your Bibles, you can flip there with me. Chapter 8, verse 1, the question has been asked of Paul in a letter-writing campaign back and forth between the Corinthians. They had asked a question about food offered to idols. They're wondering, how do we, who possess, we know we have this freedom. They're quite confident, in fact, The problem is that they were quite confident. They knew their freedoms in Christ. They had superior knowledge of their freedoms. They had gotten the doctrine right, but not how to use their freedoms. Now that seems like a contradiction. If I have freedoms, why are those freedoms limited? But but Paul, remember his entire argument throughout the book of Corinthians is that for those who are in Christ Jesus, the crucified Lord, every aspect of life has to be shaped by the cross of Jesus. The cross of Jesus is the ultimate and only center for God's people. And like the sun, it is what we orbit around, but also like the sun, the cross of Christ casts its light on everything. And so freedoms in Christ need to be used in a way that is shaped by the cross. See, it's just impossible not to live by standards. Even those who are free live by 
standards. No one can get through any decision in life without applying some set of standards to that decision. In the famous words of the great philosopher and poet Bob Dylan, you got to serve somebody. And so when you become a follower of Jesus, his standards become your standards. Your freedoms are used in the shape of the crucified one who granted those freedoms to you. You live by his word, you follow his ways, because as Paul has reminded us back in chapter 6, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Even our freedoms need to be shaped in light of the cross. And so they had understood their freedoms, but they did not yet understand how to use their freedoms. You see, giving freedoms... To just anyone giving this kind of tremendous and radical freedoms that the followers of Jesus have without giving any instructions to him. It's like giving a keys of a Ferrari to a 12-year-old who's only learned how to drive the lawnmower. They haven't quite yet matured to the point where they best know how to handle what's been given to them. And so he addresses them back in 8.1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that... All of us possess this knowledge. We understand the, the doctrines that have been given to us. But this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If someone knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. You see, there is, and this is where we're now transitioning into Paul's argument in Chapter 10, the end of 9 in chapter 10, there is a real danger in knowing biblical truth without actually knowing Jesus. Knowing biblical truth and being mature are two very different things in the subtle switch that takes place in the heart of those that belong to Jesus is this. I delight more in being known by God than I do in knowing God's truths. Which one brings more delights? The experience of being known and loved by God, therefore I want to know His Word, or just knowing His Word. It is a very dangerous thing to take up the former without also first dwelling in the latter. Now before I get some amens, I want to pause and for a second to focus on how Paul's addressing this question of food sacrificed to idols. Now it seems like a simple question and there should be a simple answer to it. And there aren't. There are simple questions, but seldom simple answers. And so Paul's not saying, he doesn't just say, you know, there's a simple question. Don't eat food sacrificed to idols, or you have freedom to eat food sacrificed to idols. What he, what he begins to do, and he also noticed that what he doesn't say is it's all just up to your individual conscience. Don't let anybody dictate to you what your conscience should believe and therefore practice. He doesn't do that. In fact, what he does is he builds out an argument in three entire chapters on how this question should be answered. Because this simple question is 
is a quite complex ethical dilemma in the city of Corinth. See, the meat in the market in Corinth was usually sourced from meat that was sacrificed to idols. Now, they're, you know, economic people, and so uh, the idols, the temples surrounded with, the city surrounded with temples, sacrifices had to be made to the idols of those temples to appease the gods. It was close to impossible, therefore, to get any meat in the city of Corinth that was not sacrificed to an idol at some point. So you go over to a friend's house and you sit down to dinner and they bring out the lamb and you knew at some point that meat was most likely sacrificed to an idol. Then it was sold in the meat market and then bought and prepared for the meal that you have in front of you. Even more likely was this scenario. That friend who invited you over for dinner was probably a prudent individual and thinks, I can do, I can kill two birds with one stone, pun intended. And so they would offer sacrifice to the idol to appease their God and also then off bring you over for dinner. I can kill two birds. I can have my God appeased and my friend over for dinner at the same time and double dip. And so the Corinthians are asking this question, like, as followers of Jesus, we know that we're, we're free to eat food sacrificed to idols, but this is a complex situation. What do we do about this? And then notice how complex Paul's teaching is at this point. He just begins in these three chapters to grab multiple biblical truths and weave them together into a tapestry, teaching them how to do theology. By applying God's word to actual life. So in, if you've got your Bibles in chapter 8 verses 4 through 6. He tells them look there's only one true God. Therefore an idol has no real existence. It's not a real thing. And in, in the latter half of chapter 10 that we didn't look at. He reminds them that any, behind any idol is the deceiver. Who is working through his demons to get all of the people of the earth to worship the mock one instead of the true one. And then in 7 through 13 of chapter 8, he says to them, look, if first there's no one true, there's only one true God, but not only everyone understands this truth. So look, your their consciences can be defiled. You don't want to, you don't want to hurt a weaker brother. So you want to protect a weaker brother. That's truth two. Truth three, nine through 1 through 23, the mark, therefore, of one who is really mature in Christ is someone who doesn't make use of their rights but gives them up for the sake of others because God's grace is like rain that always runs downhill until it finds the deepest, most broken, darkest place and will not rest until it brings life there. And then starting here in verse 24 of chapter 9, our passage for today, he reminds them that they are running a race. They are going somewhere. And that the race of faithfulness has to be run with the danger of complacency, apathy, and spiritual formalism in mind. And then as we'll see next week, he reminds them that all things are to be done for God's glory. You see what he's doing? He's grabbing these multiple strands and says, here's how you live 
with simple questions in a complex world, you have to do the work of theology, working all these things together so that you can think theologically about life because life in a fallen world where we live east of Eden in incredible difficulty and complexity only can be navigated by having our roots sunk deeply into God's word. And then we are reminded that God's word is always for life, for living. And if you're doing Bible for anything other than love for God, we're in great danger. Great spiritual danger. So now we've gotten to verse 1 of chapter 10. Paul takes them back into their history book. The history book of ancient Israel to remind them that there is a great privilege to be surrounded by God's word and his sacraments. But there's also a great danger as well to be surrounded by God's word. These are the means of God's grace. This is the way God imparts his power and works in our lives. And so he reminds them in verse 1 that their fathers, and here he's referring to ancient Israel, the Gentile Corinthians who were in Christ are linked together with the ancient people of Israel as one people so that Paul can say, these are your family. This is your story these people remind, Paul's reminding them, these people of ancient Israel externally experienced God's saving work in the Exodus event. They all went through the cloud when God led Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and they wandered through the wilderness. How did they know where they were to go next? Well, God, during the day, led them by a pillar of cloud and at night a pillar of fire and Paul reminds them they they all experienced this they were inside of God's people he saved them and and then he took them through the waters of the sea and then he gave them verse three they all ate the same spiritual food the manna that fell from heaven they all drank the same spiritual drink the exodus 17 narrative that was read earlier Notice that this one people of God, the reason he can connect the church in Corinth to the history of Israel is because God is doing one saving work in the world through one person, Jesus Christ. There is one story of redemption that starts in Genesis chapter 3 and does not finish up until God has reclaimed his earth in Revelation 22 through the one person, Jesus Christ. There is only one hope for salvation and it is that God saves and no one else. And when God saves, he does so sufficiently. And he was with the people of Israel in the wilderness and he is with the people of God today, the same God. And therefore, this serves as a cautionary tale. Verse 6, he looks back at the history of Israel and says, These things took place 
as examples, quite literally in the original language, types. They're examples, they're types, they're pointing forward to a reality so that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 11 now. Now these things happen to them as an example for us, but they were written down for our instruction. Now, here's another free aside, students. Take note of that verse. It's important for understanding both how God gave us the Bible and why he gave us the Bible. God works and then he writes it down so that they can be preserved. That's the, that's the great testimony of Scripture. God does saving work in the world through historical events and then he writes it down so that it can be kept and perpetuated for all his people for all of time. This is the sure word of God because not only has he saved, but he's preserved it. And notice what Paul's doing. He so is committed to this. This is the case that he can refer back to it as authoritative. This is God's sure, preserved, written word Therefore, I can appeal to it for you today. And then he does just that. He serves it up as this cautionary tale. By saying, look, if you're in Christ, you're running a race. Don't just be on guard against all of the traps around you in the world. But be on guard against this other trap of complacency and apathy and spiritual formalism. You see, formally, externally, the Israelites were all experiencing the saving presence of God, all his saving acts, all his provision. But then Paul reminds them that externally, being around God's presence is radically different than experiencing God's saving work in your own heart and life. Verse 5, they were all around God's presence, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. He wasn't displeased with them because of their sin. As we'll see in a second, he was displeased with them because their hearts slowly slid away from dependence to self-sufficiency. Take heed. If anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. The, the greatest danger, do you see, in any of us is not the sin around us in the world. The greatest danger for any of us is the spiritual pride that slowly slips away from Jesus. It's one of the reasons we confess our sin every week, not just because we have sin, but we're coming into the presence of Jesus saying, my sin is so great, you're my only hope, and unless you revive me again and again and again, I will follow the slow slide into complacency. We are renewed every week because formalism is a danger in any relationship. Many married couples have found out that the last child, when they go off to college and then they are stuck in the room together and realize that our marriage has become just a formal working out of some tasks together and there has to be a re-knitting together because they failed along the way to keep up the practice of adoration and cherishing of each other. 
it can happen so subtly that we become more inside of the church. It just can happen so subtly we become more concerned about the church's response to the world around us than the state of our own heart. And that, that can be true on whatever side of the political spectrum you are. Perhaps you're so caught up in fighting the culture war or being that we significantly neglect our hearts being full of the glory of Jesus. Or so caught in fighting the next wave of things that are coming down that demand a response in this world that we neglect to guard our hearts in adoration and love and dependence on Jesus. So he reminds them in verse 24 of verse of chapter 9 this that we're running a race and that the goal of the race is to finish the race. And so the question of eating food sacrificed to idols just can't be dropped in without asking this question, what task are we actually involved with? Addressing Issues or communing in dependence on the God who saves. You can't set out on a marathon and stop at McDonald's along the way. I mean, you're not going to finish that race if you just down to Big Mac. The food has to be dictated by the task you're involved in, and that task has to be dictated by the end involved. That end is with Christ my Savior in the new heavens and new earth. And so order, he's saying you're eating in terms not of what is permissible, but what is good for the task that you're involved in. And then remember that the war that we are engaged in with the world, the flesh, and the devil is a lot more like a terrorist attack than a full front out war. They're, they're after the world, the flesh, and the devil are not are not just after the ideas of God's people, but the hearts and affections. And it's so subversive that Paul reminds them to be on guard against this level in verse 6 of chapter 10. These things were written down, these events of Israel's testing in the wilderness. Notice they've gotten out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness with just them and Jesus. And this is where the real fight begins to take place. These things are written for us so that we might not desire evil as they did. The language is actually lust. That our hearts might not crave with lustful abandon after the evil things like the Israelites did. Now, you would expect them, him to kind of go on and, and give a, a bunch of different things. But instead, he warns them with four negative examples of the kind of evil that they desired. And he, he's doing, and he's, he's actually ordering this out. He's, 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 he's reordering it. It's not a chronological ordering of the events of the Exodus. He's reordering the chronology of the Exodus to make a point that this is a slow slide into spiritual complacency. Nobody wakes up one morning and says, you know what, I think I'm just going to let my heart get hard to Jesus. He reminds them this is a slow slide of a thousand steps, but it happens in a very particular way. Verse 7. The people 
Do not be idolaters as some of them were. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose to play. It's a clear reference through a direct quote to the golden calf episode when God had brought Israel out through the Red Sea, provided for them in the desert. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai for 40 days. They just, we saw the guy who parted the sea and killed all the Egyptian gods. He just disappeared into that cloud. We don't know where he is. And so instead of just settling down and remembering God's promises, they immediately turn in idolatry. Let's go make a golden calf. That God's abandoned us. Let's just subtly shift over to this thing that we can see and put all our hope, dreams, confidence for deliverance in it. That's that first step. God, I don't think you're enough. I need something else to give me what I think I need in this world. I need to put my hopes, my dreams, my ambitions, my desires, he have to be fulfilled in something else in addition to you. That's step one. Step two, it then moves into indulging bodily desires. Verse eight, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. He is invoking here Numbers 25 where the Israelite men had taken as the next step of not trusting in the full sufficiency of God's delivering power and love for them. They began to trust in the gods of the Moabites because they took the Moabite women and it led to breaking of God's law and sexual immorality. That's the way idolatry always works itself out. It always works itself out. Our desires always work itself out in our hands and feet in our lives. Or as the psalmist reminds us, we become what we worship. And then the third step. Doubting God's goodness. Verse 9. He's quoting here referencing Numbers 21. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. They'd questioned God's goodness in the midst of the trials. Isn't this what betrays us? Just slowly out of the gate, we begin to wonder, God, are you really good? Do you really care? Do you really have my good intentions in mind? Do you really even notice me? And they began to grumble. Israel had a favorite song, and the title of their favorite song was, We Were Better in Egypt, and they just loved to hum that song all day long. Remember when we were in Egypt, we had cucumbers and places to lay our heads and leeks, and they sang the song over, and they grumbled in the midst of that, God, you are, you've left us. Why have you brought us here? What have you done? And then verse 10 they began to accuse God. It's a reference to Numbers chapter 16. They grumble as some of they did and were destroyed by the destroyer. In Numbers 16, one of the Israelites, Korah, incites a rebellion against God's leaders. And what started out as a subtle attitude of the hearts has now ended up with outright verbal and behavioral rebellion against God and his leaders and their goodness. 
was started way back with just a slow adjustment to Jesus is not enough. So I'm going to fulfill my desires myself. And then I begin to wonder, is God good? And then I begin to rebel against his ways and his people. It's a, a step, each one revealing a heart It's in all of us. From Adam onward, it is in all of us. It is a heart of self-sufficiency. Beware of thinking that you're okay, lest you fall. Don't think that you're an exception to the rule. Now, here's the subtle thing. We all think we're exceptions to every rule. That, 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 that's true of them, but I know I will be fine. I'm not like Israel. Or as I often say to premarital, to couples who are getting counseling for me before they get married, uh, you ain't going to listen to anything I have to say. Because you think you're the exception. We all think we go into marriage thinking we're exceptions to the rules. Like everyone, you're like who doesn't go into something thinking this, the, what are the rules don't apply to me. I'm going to nail this. And that begins such a slow and subtle slide that he who thinks he stands is the one who is most open to the fall. So what's our hope? When I examine my life, I find myself on that spectrum. Sometimes way down on that spectrum, sometimes just starting the slide. Um, It is a slippery slope, but here's where Paul reminds them. Therefore, verse 12 Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. But also be reminded of this. God's with you. He's for you. And he is in the midst of whatever temptation you are facing as we try to navigate life in Christ in a world east of Eden that's complex and full of dangers from within and from without. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God's the one who's orchestrating All of this, whatever it is that you find yourself in the midst of, God is in the midst of it too, orchestrating all things. And one of the reasons that he links back to ancient Israel is because he also wants them to see that the story of ancient Israel is a story of God's faithfulness over and over and over and over and over and over again. And he will not abandon his people or leave us to our own hearts until He finishes his work of redemption. Paul's point, the Christian life isn't a free climb. You aren't scaling a a sheer cliff with no tethers on you. The whole point of invoking this narrative is to remind them that in the race and that in the fight, God is always with his people Even when facing temptation, no temptation has overcome you. That is unique. They've all been experienced by God. And God has delivered his people faithfully out of all of them. If they have clung to him in utter 
dependence. I mean, how many of you have just been to the point where your only cry, literally all you can get out of your mouth is just, God, I can't. Please help. That's the cry of faith. Not, God, I've got it all figured out, and I think your word is true, and I got it. I got it. You gave me your Bible. That's all I need. No, you need the God of the Bible who loves you and is with you. The reason that we can identify with their trials is because, verse 14, they drank from the same rock that we drank from, which is Christ. He's the God who has no beginning and no end. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the God that was in the presence in their redemption and in their trials is the same one who was crucified for our sins, raised to new life, is seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning over all of creation with all power and authority, and therefore tethered to him, there's always a way out. No temptation has overcome you, verse 13. It's not common to man. God is faithful. And he won't let you be tempted beyond your ability. Now, here's what he's also saying. He will let you be tempted so that you experience your inability. He's going to push you. Because... In the context of being tempted and in trials and being tested, one of the things that God is doing is driving out our self-sufficiency. You think you got this? Let me put you in a situation where you realize you cannot do anything apart from me. But also in the midst of this, that you will also experience this truth, that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Israel, let me take you to... The desert. We could have taken a couple days journey and just entered the promised land. I'm going to take you into the desert so that you'll learn to depend on me. Because the last thing I want is you in the promised land depending on yourselves. I want you to be dependent on me. So I'm going to test you. Not beyond what you can handle. But so that you might find me to be faithful. And because of that. Because God is the one who is overseeing all trials, temptations, and testing. He is present there, and as present, he is always faithful to provide an escape out. The end of verse 13. God's faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, keep hold of the you can endure it. Because you don't want to think like this is just an easy out. The word that he uses for way of escape was if you went into a building in ancient Greece, you would see an emergency exit sign. That's the word that he uses. This is your way out. If something dangerous happens, flee this way. Think of it as an outnumbered army. It's also a word that would be used for an, a pass in military conflict. An outnumbered army marching down against a small pack of individuals. Their only way out is through the pass. They would flee and escape. Under trials, 
and temptations because God is committed to not letting his people just go through the motions. He is committed to testing us so we might grow in dependence and sink the anchor of our souls into the only escape hatch, which is Christ Jesus and him crucified. Because here's the reality for all of us. There is a huge gap between what we say we believe and what we honestly believe. And part of God's design for all of us who are in Christ is closing that gap. So that when we profess with our mouth, we might actually believe it in our hearts. And that's the role of trials and temptations. God's testing. He's refining. He's making it, our hearts run better. He's taking our hearts through the paces so that we might no longer drink from the cesspools of spoiled milk that is the false things that we put our hope and trust in that we might drink from the true rock of living water that is Christ. And so, in each of the instances, one last thing that is the way of escape. In every instance that Paul records as a warning, two things happen. God's people are tested and disciplined as a warning. And God shows up with a mediator who steps forward and puts an end to the trial and delivers God's people. Therefore, my beloved, verse 14, flee from idolatry. And let's come to this table and eat and drink. Not from the rock that pointed forward to Christ, but the bread and the wine that points backward to his sufficient work. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in our midst with us today, we would pray that you by your spirit would revive us again and awaken us again, all of us. All of us have come in today with a level of apathy that needs to be removed. Let us be on guard that we might finish the race. Feed us at this table so we might be revived again on Christ Jesus and him crucified. Amen.